hands up if you need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and put your hands up. We'll get one to you. If you don't have a Bible, keep the one we give you. Um, we want you to keep that as a gift and read it daily. Um, I love what R.C. Spall said about the Bible. He said, in fact, the devil is delighted when we spend our time and energy defending the Bible, as long as we don't get around to actually reading the Bible. I thought that was good. Uh, I want to think, before I talk about the Advent candles, um, Lance uh, came over. I guess he was scrolling through Facebook or something, because uh, he found these. This is, these are Christmas ornaments. This is the purpose of these Christmas ornaments. Let me see if I can... Oh my goodness, these are hard to get out here. All right, let's see. There we go. Uh-oh, this one's coming out here. Let's see if I can get another one there. Here we go. This is... <laughs> All right. Get that hanging up right there. Yeah, there we go. I'll do some more later there. Oh, thank you, Lance. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the whole service with those. We'll see. <laughs> there we go. No? You like that? That's pretty good. I'll get, I'll may, maybe wear those for. Uh... <laughs> so, this is why I love our elder team. <laughs> Stuff like this, right? I, had, I have multiple signs in my office about bacon because of the elder team. So, <laughs> and, 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 a, and a few other friends here. Um, all right, uh, before we get started, you might have noticed that we have lit our um, fourth Advent candle there. The andle, the, that candle symbolizes peace. It's called the angel's candle, and it reminds us of the message of the angels. Gosh, I can't get these out now. There we go. Uh, it reminds us uh, of the message of the angels, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Uh, we call, uh, or, or, or we can spend the days uh, from here leading up to Christmas Eve contemplating what it means that God has made peace with humanity through his son Jesus, that, that we would know that peace, that we would be at peace with one another. Uh, the candle's purple, like the first and second candles, and in this case, it points particularly to repentance. The candles sit within the wreath, which is like a wedding ring, and it's an unending circle that represents Christ's unending love for us and reminding us to keep him, as we have the candles in the center, to keep him at the center of all of our Christmas celebrations and traditions. So this week's challenge, contemplate the peace that God has made with you through his son Jesus as we go about our various preparations for Christmas. Spend this week in prayer repenting of your sins that had separated you from God in the first place and remembering Jesus who came to pay the price for those sins. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. By the way, we have our Christmas day. We did not cancel Christmas. We did not cancel a church service because it landed on Christmas. Because, like, we gather because of Christ. <laughs> I mean, I saw a really funny video on that. We were not going to show it, but, um, but no, uh, yeah, uh, and, and bring your kids. Bring your babies to the Christmas Eve and the Christmas Day service. Um, what, what, of all the days to skip going to church, 
Like, you know, right? Like, bring, your, bring the kids in. Fill, fill this room. We want to hear the... We're celebrating a baby. And, 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 and our, our, uh, there's just so many things to celebrate when we hear the pitter-patter of feet and the fussing and the whining. And we just, we love that. So um, we, uh, we want you guys to come. Uh, Luke 9, 49. <clears throat> John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. O oh, good and faithful Father, we do so desperately need you. And so often we rely on our own abilities to meet whatever needs and goals we have. And yet the one prize worth chasing is one only you can provide for. Help us, O oh Lord, to rely upon you. God, give us the attitudes and the character that we need to faithfully serve and honor you. Help us to understand what Jesus did on our behalf so that we might be humble in receiving the value that his humble sacrifice gives to us. Thank you that Jesus came, born in a manger, to identify with his creation, to save us, to give us peace with God. We give this time over to you, Lord, that your spirit would fill our hearts and that we would be filled with understanding through him. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Is there... It sounds like there's music somewhere. Do you hear a very faint music? I don't know where it's coming from. It's weird. Okay, so I'll try to be louder than that. How's that? Um, now, if you know me, you know how much I love church history, right? I... R.C. Sprawl, we have some one guy's groaning, right? No, R.C. Sprawl claims that nobody loves Martin Luther as much as he does. If that's true, I'm at least nipping at his heels. I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther is, he's passionate. He was principled. He was sometimes kind of vulgar, and he loved Jesus. He was a, a, a devoted follower of Jesus. He loved Christ, and he loved the church. And he was a priest in what would be distinguished as the Roman Catholic Church. 
And he had a powerful testimony. But he saw the flaws in the church and he set out to correct them, for which the church excommunicated him and tried to have him killed. Well, thus the Protestant Reformation was born. In Europe, the Reformation spread like wildfire, possibly faster. Uh, and, and as time progresses, the, the church in Germany, which would be the Lutheran church, had grown to prominence. But the church in Geneva was moving on to become the most important theological movement of Protestantism, even today, even to, to this day, from back then. Before John Calvin left France for Geneva, a guy by the name of Ulrich Zwingli was at the forefront of this movement. Zwingli laid the groundwork. I love Zwingli. He laid the groundwork for what would later, um, after Calvin came in and, and wrote the Institutes, uh, would become Calvinism. And the Presbyterians, the Puritans, uh, most of the Baptists would not be who they became apart from Zwingli's influence. Now, well, Luther found himself forced to make some corrections to the Roman church's position on communion, which is transubstantiation. Uh, that teaches that although the bread and wine look and taste and smell like bread and wine, they become the physical body and blood of Jesus when the priest blesses them. Well, Luther acknowledged that the substance was bread and wine, but he said that Christ is physically present in, over, under, and around it, upon it. Well, Zwingli, he comes around and says, Luther, that's absurd. Uh, the physical body of Christ isn't even omnipresent. So Zwingli's position was that Christ was spiritually present with the elements as we receive them, but is, it's more about the one receiving the elements than, uh, themselves or rather than the, the elements themselves. The Anabaptists also uh, began to grow in popularity. They were not a monolith. They had all kinds of different ideas depending on where you went. But one of the two things they really had in common was that they viewed communion as being purely a remembrance meal with no special spiritual presence involved because Christ is always present with us. Well, Zwingli had refused to go that far because of the biblical sacredness that is associated with communion. Um, and, and, and said that, yeah, there, that Christ is, is present, not anymore, but in a special way when we receive communion. And I kind of lean towards that because I think it would be unwise to neglect how sacred it is when we partake um, and, and to recognize that the special honor we give Christ in that and that as he receives that honor, there's something spiritual or something special rather about the way in which he's kind of spiritually presently interacting with us in that moment. Um, so there's, I think there may be something to it. Um, the Bible doesn't give us the deepest of details on that. But Luther was appalled by Zwingli's rejection um, that Christ is not physically present in communion. And so Luther goes to Geneva to try to come up with some sort of unity with Zwingli. And I imagine he thought, because he's a little bit like me, and I have a ten tendency to just want to convince everybody of the way I think. And I, I imagine that Luther uh, thought he could maybe convince Zwingli to come around to his way of thinking. 
Luther in his discussion had at one point, he was just pounding the table and yelling, Hoc est corpus mim, which it means this is my body, and arguing that that had to be taken literally. Zwingli and others argued that Jesus had called himself a vine and a door. So how then do we take that? Remember Bill Clinton? It depends on what the meaning of what the word is, is, right? Like, so is, let's be honest, it can represent something without being literal, right? And, and in the end, Zwingli and Luther parted more divided and angry than they had started. Luther turned to Zwingli and said, you are Enderngeist, which is a different spirit. It was here that Luther and the Apostle John are very alike. Luther insisted that if Zwingli wasn't with him, he really wasn't of Christ at all. The reality is, just as Jesus corrected John, Luther's attitude was not of Christ in this respect. Now, listen, I love Luther like crazy. But he was dead wrong, first about communion, but even more so in his attitude towards Zwingli. And we're going to see a similar issue here with the disciples in this first part of our section of Luke 9 today. This a little bit of divisiveness here. Luke 9, 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. We're going to be looking at character values and commitment values today. Uh, the thing is, is that we can have a strong and stalwart commitment to obeying what Jesus said, but if it isn't rooted in godly character, we're going to get it wrong. If we have godly character, the commitment will follow. So pay careful attention here. The first character trait we see is humility, which is hard for some of us. It falls right in line with what we looked at last week at Christmas share. Luke 9, 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now we see the disciples asking the wrong question, right? Their greatness was irrelevant. The one who is great is Jesus, and he is least, because Jesus had lowered himself to suffer as the lowest of humanity, and until they could understand what it means to honor the lowest, they will never understand greatness to begin with. So in our text today, I believe John might be deflecting a little bit here. He, he, he might be pushing back. Because we have no idea who this guy is that John's talking about. Uh, just some guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Like we see him all over the place, right? No, just kidding. We don't see that. Um, but this is what this guy's doing. Luke wants to make sure that we see this in light of the previous dispute about greatness. The message here, here is about being humble. Any real good that is going to come from anybody is from God's working, not their own. In fact, if we, if we go to Deuteronomy, this was a big deal for Israel here, right? In Deuteronomy 
chapter 9. It says in verse 1, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly. The Lord has promised you, or as the Lord has promised you, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm that the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. You see, true success in ministry, and it's always been this way, comes from God. So we need to be careful about our attitudes, uh, about our own work and faithfulness. The anonymous preacher was apparently, well, he definitely wasn't part of the 12, and he was apparently also not of the 72 that we're going to see commissioned uh, when we move on to chapter 10 on January 1st. We have to recognize the implications of God's grace. God loves us because of Jesus, not because of us or who we are or what we're associated with. He loves us in spite of us. And that should humble us about the way we see other people. Here the disciples were a bit excessive in their attitudes, or exclusive rather, um, in their attitudes. One commentator identified this as a form of tribalism and identified ways in which tribalism exists today, or at least can exist today. Uh, ethnic tribalism, right? Black versus white. Gender tribalism. Male versus female. Versus, um, never mind. Not going to go there. Theological tribalism. Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? Generational tribalism. Boomers versus Xers versus Millennials versus Zers. Uh, community tribalism, right? Urban versus suburban versus rural versus those people that are totally urban but wear really expensive outdoorsy stuff from REI. Class tribalism, right? Rich versus middle class versus poor versus having six children with healthy appetites. Political tribalism, Republican versus Democrat versus Libertarian versus Elon Musk. No, uh, we, we identify ourselves into groups, right? And, and it's getting more and more prominent with things such as critical race theory and intersectionality being promoted in the media and in the government and in schools. And it's the kind of tribalism that is rejected in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for in one spirit, 
we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so when John tries to stop this guy because he wasn't one of his crowd, Jesus corrects him. Now, we're absolutely called to contend for sound doctrine. We're not going to welcome, oh, yeah, you want to come serve here at IBC and you don't believe in the Trinity? Sorry, <laughs> no, right? There... But if you're like me, you kind of might tend to be a little bit of a theological neatnik and the smaller things become bigger things, right? Like we're solid on our doctrines. We know where we st stand on issues of Christian liberty and eschatology and soteriology and sign gifts and ecclesiology and covenant versus, versus dispensational theology and all theologies and the list goes on, right? And then we start pointing fingers, right? Like Luther did with Zwingli. And, 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 and we need to be humble. We need to be charitable and, and, and let the Holy Spirit do his job because, let's face it, the Holy Spirit is way better at his job than any of us are. We don't, we don't need to like, evaluate the prayers of strangers. Like, I don't think he understands the ecclesiological implications of the eschaton and the worldview of post-Maccabean Judaism. Like, he must be a heretic. And you're like, bro, I'm just asking God to bless my meal here. Right? Like, here's the thing. I don't know if, if Jesus was really supporting this anonymous man so much as he was correcting John's prideful exclusivity. Uh, the guy could have been a total heretic. We, don't, we just don't know. Jesus here is dealing with John. Later on, Paul said this of the supposed Christians that didn't like him in Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verse 15, it says, Some indeed pre preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to, to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Jesus is saying, hey, whoever isn't against you is for you. And that's a bit different than if you aren't for me, you're against me, which he does say in other places. But in this case, we don't know this guy. Uh, we don't know his motives, but, but, but what he's doing is doing in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus tells him, leave him alone. That's humility. The next part is mercy. Humility, and now we got mercy. Now, they're both character values. Verse 51, Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now, the, the first thing to notice here is that Luke is making a shift in the context. Jesus had been preparing for this journey to Jerusalem, and now he's headed that way. He was, he was telling them that he had to go suffer, and now he is going to where he is going to suffer. Geographically, it's a very interesting situation. There's, a, there's some serious co-mutual 
ethnic prejudices taking place here between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, this, was, this was ethnic tribalism at its finest. The Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans, and the Samaritans felt the same way. Traditionally, the Samaritans are considered to be a mixed-race population that settled in Israel after uh, the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom. But there is also some mystery surrounding their ethnic history and their split with the Jews. But the Samaritans had their own form of the Pentateuch. They had their, that's the first five books, or, or the Torah, right? Um, they had their own liturgy. They had their own religious literature. And so we can see uh, some of those distinctions here when Jesus in John chapter 4 meets up with the Samaritan woman. Go there to John 4, verse 20. Keep your finger there on Luke 9. We'll be there all morning. Uh, John 4, verse 20. It says, our fathers worshipped, this is the woman, the woman at the well speaking to Jesus, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then, of course, Jesus gives his famous response. Uh, many of you have heard this. Most, uh, some of you may even have some of this memorized. John 4.21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in, in, in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We could do an entire series on that one passage. And maybe we will one day. But nevertheless, in this passage, and, and the passage that we're studying in Luke, Jesus is opposing ethnic and religious tribalism. So this fits perfectly in the context of the previous section. Do, do you remember the cliques in high school? You remember those? There were all these different cliques. Anybody? Am I I'm the only one? They had clicks in high school. Yeah, they were. I I I played football, so I had the cool click because um, I could interact with other clicks too. And but there were this. You had all these different clicks. You had the um, Hispanics and, and that dressed a certain way over here, and then you had, uh, you know, you had like a, we had lots of skinheads at TVHS, but they weren't Temecula Valley High School. But I don't think they were real skinheads. I think they were kind of. Posers? I don't know. Uh, and then we had the Goths. Remember the Goths, right? The Goths were fun. They had their faces all white, and they loved talking about suicide. And right, All these different cliques that you would have. Um, and so we kind of hung out with the people that we had some, of, some sort of connection with, right? Some sort of some sort of a, either maybe it was an ethnic connection, maybe it was a sports connection, uh, maybe it was maybe it was a class connection, you know, maybe the rich kids kind of hung out together. There was, we, we hung out with the people that had a connection. And those of us who are adults remember those cliques in high school, but we've all grown out of that, right? You're supposed to laugh. That's, right? No, like, not, not entirely. Even adults gravitate towards people they identify with. I've been in workplaces where, have you been in this place where you're in a workplace and then at lunchtime, all the Christians sit together at one table? Right? Don't do that. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, sometimes there was a table of the, there were the semi-retired part-timers, a table of young community college kids who party when they're not at work or school. And you had the gay table and the tradesman's table. And, you know, people that identified with each other in some way would kind of gravitate toward each other. In first century in Israel, Jews congregated with Jews. Samaritans congregated with Samaritans. They had their own regions uh, in that area. They were oil and water. It isn't like the Samaritans just wish they could be as cool as the Jews. No, they felt like they were the true people of the God of Israel. And the, and the center of Jewish worship was Jerusalem. The Samaritans had their own place, right? And this is where Jesus was headed. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem because he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice made in the holiest city. But because Jesus had affirmed that part of the Jewish religious system by setting his face toward Jerusalem, he was rejected as disciples were rejected in Samaria. And by rejecting the disciples, they're rejecting Jesus. And in First and Second Kings, there's these couple examples of Elijah calling down fire uh, because of a rejection of Yahweh. So this is what James and John felt was appropriate for these Samaritans. And I mean, it's not exactly an unnatural instinct. I mean, I'm sure most of us could think of someone that we would call fire down from heaven on if we could. Don't lie, right? We're all sinners. Uh, we just need to own the fact that we're sinners and we need to repent of sin, right? But at, at that time, and really throughout history, there have been civil consequences for rejecting whatever the accepted religion was in a given place. So the way that Jesus responds here is counter-cultural. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Christian church uh, suffered intense persecution for, for, for a few centuries before eventually Christianity was accepted. And, and then when Christianity was accepted, it became the dominant religion, and the government then forced the Christian faith on the people. And as the empire crumbled into various states, the church then became the dominant political power, which ultimately ended up centering on the pope. Um, and it led to it becoming the Roman Catholic Church that excommunicated Martin Luther and tried to have him killed. But it took a generation for the reformers um, after Martin Luther to realize that making faith compulsive was opposed to the teachings of Jesus. This is one of those places that teaches us that. Uh, there's this guy by the name of Michael Servetus. You, you may have heard of him. He was a humanist that had participated in the Re Reformation. Uh, he later rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, for which John Calvin publicly denounced him. But because he was now a marked heretic, Calvin had to warn him not to come to Geneva, because if he came to Geneva, the people were going to execute him. And Servetus didn't listen now, although Calvin was opposed to this capital punishment for him, he was forced to support the city's governing council, and Servetus was killed. After that, sometime, you know, uh, the Protestants kind of quickly realized, hey, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing this. And uh, that ended. But Jesus is the one who will come 
to judge the living and the dead. But he taught us mercy. He taught us mercy. You may remember that great sermon that Jesus preached in Luke chapter 6. In verse 27 it says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. James, he took all the words of Jesus to heart. This is what he says in James 1.20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Mercy is a central character of Christ that we are to emulate. Matthew 5.7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Thabiti Aniabwile said, The Lord turns us from pride to humility, from tribalism to cooperation, from vengeance to mercy. To be clear, the two character values of humility and mercy are very costly. If you're not all in, you will not be able to hang on to those attitudes. And with that, we move from those character values to three commitment values. Verse 57, Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever I go. Jesus said, okay, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus and his disciples are traveling towards Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is all the talk. Everywhere he goes, people are wondering where, who this guy is. And they're coming to various conclusions. Uh, some of them getting, getting it right. right? And, and there's this anonymous person that runs to Jesus. He confesses his devotion and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. We often sing a song in church that has that line, don't we, right? I like this song. There's a million reasons to trust you, nothing to fear, for you are by my side. I'll follow you anywhere. Will you, though? When you sing that, are you being sincere? Because Jesus called us to the value of sacrifice. Are you all in? Jesus challenges this guy. Yo, even a sly fox has a den to rest in before she goes out to, to seduce her prey again. Even something as worthless as a little bird has a nest to sleep in before it goes out for more seeds and worms. Can you humble yourself below these things and give up even the most basic of human comfort to follow Jesus? And Abwell said, the creator of the universe was homeless in his own creation. My family and I have been blessed to take a few really cool road trips through through and to different parts of the country. I just, I love road tripping. It's such a cool experience. And, and when we do, not only do we have a place to sleep, we're usually able to fail, find a deal on a place that isn't Motel 6. Um, but, but even Motel 6 is better than a park bench, right? Not to, maybe I'm divulging of my high-maintenance <laughs> self here. I don't, <laughs> but in reality, even the Motel 6 somewhere in the Midwest that had sticky floors um, that we stayed in, that was fun, um, even that's better than a park bench, right? 
And this guy tells Jesus that he'll follow him anywhere. And Jesus replies to him by asking him how far he would really be willing to go. He was devoted in speech. But will he back that up with his life? Is he really all in? What aren't you willing to sacrifice? The beady Annie Abweil said, her desire for comfort and security often hinders our obedience to the Great Commission. Security smothers sacrifice. That's tragic when the kingdom of God is at stake. Beloved, we want to have a sacrificial attitude because the time is short and souls are at stake. So the first commitment value is sacrifice and then Jesus turns his attention to another guy. And to this guy, he doesn't respond to a confession, but rather he gives a command to this guy, bringing us to the second commitment value, which is dedication. Verse 59, Luke 9, 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus goes from challenging one guy's commitment to follow him to telling another guy to follow him. But in this case, the guy stalls. Perhaps he heard that warning to the first guy, right? A lot of concerns in this life. It's, it's not just about comfort. Look, we have families, right? We need to look out for our families. We need to look out for our fi finances so, so that we can care for our families. There's, there's a lot of stuff to, to be concerned about in this world. In fact, this guy may have been concerned about receiving the inheritance that he would have when his dad passed. We don't think his dad was dead yet. You'd think he was, his dad was, was aging. And so maybe this person would need those funds to support the ministry as he followed Jesus. I need to wait till dad goes. Dad, dad's getting old. You know, some, some of us are in that season, right, with our parents aging, right? My, my, as my dad is succumbing to dementia way faster than he ought to, uh, my, my sister and my brother and myself, we, we have to be sure to, to care for all of his needs. He, he, he doesn't have any mind left to be able to care for even his most basic needs. So we need to provide for those in some way, his health, his, his regular care, his diet, um, his estate, you know, all of the, the stuff that he spent his life earning. It's all just super heavy stuff that we have to, deal with. And by the way, I, I do want to thank you all as a little side note. I want to thank all of you that have been praying for my dad. I know a lot of you have been and um, he's out of the hospital now. We have him under some new care and a new place and he, he seems to be growing more comfortable and happy and getting in the routine. And so, so God's been listening to your prayers and I thank you so much for that. Um, please continue to pray for my dad. All that to say, that might be the position this guy's in. Right? There, there's, there's something he needs to care about with his dad. But I think the most important piece is this is actually a legitimate excuse in the Jewish worldview to avoid service, to avoid serving God. Because making sure a loved one receives a proper burial was of paramount importance to the Jews. In our own time, we kind of 
feel like they're in a better place and we don't see the physical body as having as much importance. And so we'll cremate people and then we keep the ashes or we, we have them placed somewhere special and, um, you know, uh, just a small memorial. And we, and we also have things like photographs and different things to help remember them by. And, and sometimes I think, honestly, we might even give too little respect to the body of a deceased person. But back then, they held the human body in very high regard. Um, John Nolan said, the urgent need for the man to, to bond himself to Jesus and become a proclaimer of the kingdom of God takes precedence over other responsibilities in much the same way that in Jewish thought, the responsibility to bury a relative took precedence, precedence over one's normal obligations under the Torah. This was very important to them. Jesus isn't negating that either. He's not saying that's not important. What he's saying is that his calling is so high that it trumps even the most significance of traditions and values. But our dedication needs to be such that we are trusting God to be concerned about our other responsibilities. He's got this, right? So whether, whether it was respect or security that the man was after, Jesus is demonstrating that dedication to his calling and trusting his provision is, uh, in that is, is paramount to all of those other needs. So our first two commitment values are sacrifice and dedication. The third is priority. Verse 61, we'll close out the chapter here. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. This is a man who has things in his life that need to be cared for. Uh, he, has, he has a family to say goodbye to, but it goes deeper than that. He, he has things that, he needs to do before he can be fully devoted, right? I'll have time, just I need to tie up a few loose ends first. Just once I'm done with this, then I can really fully surrender. What makes us too busy? What makes us too busy? I, I've spoken to a lot of families that are in church on Sundays, quote, when we have time, I'd say probably most of the time it's sports and other extracurricular things for the, for the kids. And to be fair, we don't want to be legalistic about this, but what does the way you use your time communicate about your commitment to Jesus? We're actually told in the New Testament not to neglect regularly gathering together as an organized assembly of believers. We're also told to serve one another in and outside of that assembly. The Bible doesn't tell us to prioritize kids' sports over worship and service. In fact, it doesn't even tell us to prioritize our children over those things. And the reason is, what priorities are we teaching our children when we regularly skip out on being involved with our church family in order to participate in the activities that revolve around them? Friends, we have several emerging generations of Christians now who have a really hard time not feeling that God exists for them. 
rather than the other way around. The way Jesus responds to all of that is by using an agricultural illustration that the people would understand. If you're plowing a field and looking back, you will not be able to plow in a straight line. I remember one of my very first flight lessons. Uh, I, I, my instructor, um, was he had been a, a Marine drill sergeant, and he, he was tough and loud. And he was short, but this guy, don't pick a fight with this guy. He, he was, and, and he, was, he was a tough guy, which is what a, any 17-year-old student pilot needs. And, and this one day, we're departing French Valley Airport in Marietta to the southeast to do some maneuvers. And I begin looking down, and I see my friend's house, and I look down at my high school, and I see Target. Was, I mean, that's pretty much all that was in Temecula back then. But I'm looking around at this fast-growing city of Temecula, and my instructor barked at me in his best Marine voice, if you want to go sightseeing, I'll fly the plane. Oops, right? Well, I had forgotten all about that until like a month or so ago. Um, I was, a friend of mine had introduced me to his boss who owns a magnificent V-tail Bonanza, Beechcraft Bonanza. And if you know what that is, you'll know. It's the most beautiful airplane ever made. Um, and my favorite airplane of all time. But anyhow, as we flew around, he gives me the controls. And I was then <laughs> reminded about what a delight that airplane is to fly. Woo! Boy, is it smooth and nice. It just, and we get over Vail Lake, and, and a lot's changed, so I'm kind of looking down as we circle over it, and before I knew it, I had climbed 500 feet. We have to pay attention to where we're going. Right? Any of you ever look down at your phone as you're going down to Hemet and almost drive off the road? Or like, you look up and you're like head on for a truck? We have to pay attention to where we are going. Vail Lake is great, but the priority of a pilot is to fly the airplane. Aviate, navigate, communicate. If you're flying an airplane and an emergency occurs, that's the order. Any other order can be deadly. The first thing you always do is fly the airplane. Even if the engine fails, did you know an airplane will still fly? Right? doesn't really fly up, but it'll fly for a little while. It just, it's not going to fall out of, the, out of the sky unless you stop flying the airplane. This, this is what Jesus is saying about priorities. What's, where is following God in your list of priorities, right? This is what Jesus is saying. Don't get distracted from what you're called to. And there's more to flying than just controlling the airplane. You've got navigation. You've got to communicate with other aircraft and with controllers. Um, there are a lot of cool things to look at on the ground. Um, you, you, you have, uh, in some airplanes, you have a pressurization system you've got to manage. But the priority, the priority is always fly the airplane. You manage those tasks, but you do not get distracted by them. Jesus, he had a lot of conversations, and he did a lot of things on his way to Jerusalem, but he never took his eyes off his mission. And so what is it for us? What is it that distracts us from allowing, from placing God 
and, and, and our service and our faithfulness to God as our top priority. What would happen if Jesus had let himself become distracted from what he would do on the cross? Is there, is there anything distracting us from the priority of following Jesus? So those are the five values that we've looked at. There's two character values and three commitment values. Humility, mercy, sacrifice, dedication, and priority. And we cannot be faithful to God with, without pursuing those values. We cannot be faithful to God, uh, or rather, we cannot be faithful without godly character, and we cannot be faithful apart from devoted commitment to God. We, we cannot be faithful to God if we're not humble. Jesus humbled himself by stepping out of his throne and into his own creation to die for us. We cannot be faithful if we are not merciful. We cannot understand God's mercy toward us until we show mercy to others. Listen, you'll recall this in Luke 6, verse 36, in that great sermon, Jesus says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And in Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We also can't be faithful to Jesus unless we are willing to sacrifice everything for him. Jesus was heading for Jerusalem to lay it all down. And so we must be all in. Or, or the reality is we'll walk out when we're called to make a sacrifice we don't want to make. Remember the rich young ruler, he felt like he was in good shape with God. So Jesus challenges him to give everything he owned to the poor and he went away sad. It's because he had a priority problem. There was something he wasn't willing to give up, something he wouldn't sacrifice. What are you not willing to sacrifice for the sake of Jesus? Fourth, we cannot be faithful to God without dedication. You see how these things go together? Our affections for Jesus should trump all other affections. Dedication. Our trust in him should exceed all other trusts. And lastly, lastly, we cannot be faithful to God apart from making our faithfulness to him our top priority. Otherwise, we are not really faithful. What is most important to you? Don't just say you'll follow him anywhere, will you? We can say whatever we want, but... But what we claim and who we are can be two different things. How we spend our time and money reveals more about what we truly believe is important than anything that comes out of our mouths. Because we always act according to what we believe. In our text today, we've seen Jesus begin his final journey toward the toward what he was born to do. Jesus was born to die. The angels announced, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. 
And here's the thing. Our creator stepped into his own creation to be crucified by those he created so that he could be merciful toward them. How is that not humbling? How does that not give us mercy to emulate? What would we not sacrifice in light of what he gave for us? What more faithful person or thing is there to be dedicated to? How should we not prioritize his honor, glory above all earthly things? As we prepare to receive communion this morning, think about humility, mercy, and sacrifice, and dedication, and priority. Take some time to repent as you look upon these elements. Because when we, when we receive communion, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus on our behalf until he, he returns. He came first as a priestly king to deal with sin, to be a light to the world, to come born in a, in a manger and then to die on our behalf. But he's returning as a royal king to, to take back what is rightfully his. And when he does that, will we be counted among the faithful who are humble, merciful, willing to sacrifice all, dedicated entirely to him with our service and worship to him as our top priority? Are we all in? For those who have not surrendered to Jesus, we would ask that you please allow the elements to pass you by. The Bible warns that to take communion in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment on our heads. And we don't want that for you. It's a sacred rite. Communion is a sacred rite. It's reserved for those who have repented of their sins and placed their trust in Jesus. So for all of those who have repented of your sins, reflect now on what, his, what this means and receive gladly, for you have a God who has been merciful to you by giving his life in place of yours. Let us pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, that though we have failed to be humble and merciful, he humbled himself to be born in such a way that he, he might relate to the poor and needy of this world, that, when, that he was rejected, beaten, and crucified for us so that we might receive his mercy. And although we have failed to sacrifice all to be to be fully dedicated and to place you, our good God, as our highest priority. Jesus prioritized those he loves and gave it all for them. Though we are not all in, he is. Help us, O oh Lord, to be like Jesus, to surrender all. O oh God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive of your sacred table that is set before us. Thank you that our good Savior has paid the price, <clears throat> has removed our great debt of sin, and help us to be devoted disciples. Thank you that by your grace, the blood of Jesus was poured out and ran down that horrible, terrible, wretched, and beautiful cross. Oh Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.